0: Welcome to Tax Notes Talk, a podcast from Tax Notes, the leading source of tax news, information, and analysis. Welcome to the podcast. I'm David Stewart, Editor-in-Chief of Tax Notes Today International. This week, pillars progress. We're checking in again on the OECD's two-pillar project to reform the taxation of multinational companies. Despite ongoing challenges, the inclusive framework on base erosion and profit shifting continues to make progress toward a final design for implementation. In a minute, I'll be joined by Tax Notes Chief Correspondent Stephanie Sung to talk more about where things stand now and where we expect them to go. Later in the episode, we'll hear from Tax Notes state author Namada Yadav about her column, Tax Matters of Life and Death. But first, Stephanie, welcome back to the podcast.
1: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: So before we really dive into things, could you give our audience a bit of a refresher on what the two pillars are?
1: Yes. Yeah, so the two pillars This refers to uh, a plan that the OECD sort of brokered among 137 countries. It was meant to follow up on Action 1 of the oecd Base erosion and profit shifting project, uh, which dealt with addressing the tax challenges of the digital economy. So the two pillars was basically an overhaul of the international tax system, it does two separate things. Pillar 1 would revise profit allocation nexus rules to give market jurisdictions a new taxing right called amount A over some portion of multinational corporate residual profits that are tied to sales in a market jurisdiction. You know, that's where the consumers are located. Pillar 1 also has amount B and uh, that provides a fixed return for baseline marketing and distribution activities in market jurisdictions in line with the arms length standard, and it also includes dispute resolution and prevention mechanisms for tax certainty for Amount A and issues related to Amount A. So Pillar 1 is widely seen as part of the plan that will address the taxation of digital activity. It also requires countries to withdraw unilateral measures like digital services taxes that they may have adopted in the absence of a multilateral solution to tax digital activity. and also prevents countries from introducing new measures, new such measures, So at the heart of Pillar 2 are the GLOBE rules, uh, the global anti-base erosion rules, which are the income inclusion rule, or the IAR, and the UTPR, which is also known as the under-tax payments or profits rule. And this is a system of top-up taxation, you know, to make sure that companies do pay 15% minimum tax rate. And Pillar 2 also includes the uh, subject-to-tax rule, that's a treaty-based rule, under which source jurisdictions can impose a top-up withholding tax on some related party payments that are taxed below a nominal rate of 9%. And as I've talked about before on this podcast, nearly all of the 140-some members of the Inclusive Framework had agreed in 2021 that they would adopt these two pillars.
0: Okay, so this project has been going on for, for quite some time now. I understand there's been some major changes since we last talked about it in July. Could you tell us what's been going on?
1: Yes. So not so much changes, major changes of the project itself, but for uh, the team behind it. So everyone knows that Pascal Saint-Amand, he was a director of the um, OECD Center for Tax Policy Administration. He unexpectedly announced in September that he was stepped down as the director of the CTPA. At the end of October, he decided he would take a job elsewhere. Um, And now he's at the Brunswick Group, which is a global advisory firm. And now Grace Navarro, who was formerly deputy director, is now the director of the CTPA. So that's kind of interesting. You know, Pascal had been in this role for you know over ten years and was the one who really got um, the BEPS project and the BEPS two project going. So I had asked him, you know, why now? Because it seems like a lot of people were asking him, you know, why. Now, it sounds like you're going to jump ship because it's sinking, you know, but he insisted that it was because he, he had been thinking about leaving for a while, but just had a chance. And now that the pillars seem to be pretty stable and the work is you know still going and he felt it was time to go and get fresh blood in. So Grace Perez Navarro will be um, director until uh, March next year and then she'll retire. And it's still unclear who will take over as director after she leaves.
0: All right. So for getting into the details, why don't we start with Pillar 2? As I mentioned, we talked about this back in July. So, what have been the updates since then?
1: So, at the OECD, uh, the Secretariat and Working Party 11 are continuing to work on what they call the Globe Implementation Framework. They hope to get that out by the end of the year. This framework includes things like safe harbors, administrative guidance, standardized return forms, things that MEs, in scope MEs, would need to comply with these rules once countries start adopting them. And the OECD is also trying to get out the subject to tax rule, I think, by the end of the year as well, if I'm not mistaken. Meanwhile, you know, countries are starting to um, move toward implementation, but it sort of feels like, you know, who's going to jump in the pool first, kind of. Um, No one really has adopted a global minimum tax at all except the U.S. And countries are in varying stages of implementation. Some have started consulting on implementing Pillar 2 in the respective countries. Others have produced draft legislation. You know, the EU comes to mind as the first to have a draft directive on the table. And on uh, November 17th, the UK had their autumn statement, and you know they had been consulting on how to implement Pillar 2. And the chancellor of the exchequer, Jeremy Hunt, announced that the UK was indeed going to implement Pillar 2 rules, uh, starting with the GLOBE. So he announced during the autumn statement that the u k would legislate for the income inclusion rule the i i r in the spring finance bill twenty twenty three and they'll also adopt a qualified domestic minimum tax which countries are allowed to adopt these minimum taxes or sort of would take effect before the income inclusion rule, so it's an optional measure that countries can adopt uh, under the globe model rules so the u k announced that it would also produce UTPR legislation, so the rule takes effect no later than the accounting period beginning on or after December 31st, 2024, which really means the UTPR would take effect in 2025. So, you know, there is some stuff moving. I mean, there, there are countries moving. It's just a matter of who's going to go first.
0: Support for this podcast is provided by SafeSend. The lack of qualified candidates continues to cause issues in the profession, but progressive firms are empowering admin with tax automation software to do the heavy lifting. The SafeSend suite will save your admin staff hours on assembly, delivery, and e-signing of tax packages, saving money, and making staff happier. And your staff deserve the sweet life this coming busy season. Schedule a demo to experience this workflow automation solution for yourself at SafeSend.com. That's SafeSend.com. So before this project even got started, the U.S. had implemented a sort of minimum tax in the global intangible low-tax income rules. And since we last talked, the U.S. has adopted a second sort of minimum tax, the book minimum tax in the corporate AMT as part of the Inflation Reduction Act. How does that factor into all of this discussion on Pillar 2?
1: I think a lot of the hope for the U.S. implementing Pillar 2 rules Really, kind of rode on the reforms on guilty because guilty, the IIR was sort of inspired by guilty, and it was, you know, countries were hoping that the US would um, be able to amend the guilty so it's more in line with the IIR. But because now we've got this corporate AMT in place, the question is, you know, how will it work with the IIR under the globe framework? How are other countries going to treat it? Is it gonna be what they call a qualified IIR in line with the rules? Is it gonna be another CFC regime? Kim Klossing, I think, recently said that at a conference. She said that it was a probably it could be like a bridge toward, you know, eventual global IIR adoption for the US, but it's still really unclear what's what's gonna happen now.
0: Now, going beyond the U.K. and and U.S. potential implementation of this, what are we seeing in other countries? How are they approaching Pillar 2?
1: A lot of countries like uh, Switzerland, Canada, Singapore, uh, Jersey, they're all consulting on how their respective countries should adopt uh, the globe rules. The only block of countries that has actually produced any kind of draft legislation that is sort of complete is the EU. As you know, the EU produced a directive, a draft directive in December, 2021 on the globe rules, but they've had a lot of trouble getting uh, unanimity on this directive because as you know, the EU needs all member states to be on board with a tax directive. And Hungary is still its sole holdout. And that has been a bit of a problem for the commission and for the EU council. Um, because I really want to get Pillar 2 and the globe off the ground. There are five EU countries, including Germany and France, they said that they would go ahead anyway if Hungary continued to hold out and sort of do an enhanced cooperation kind of type of thing. Enhanced cooperation means that uh, you know a group of member states can, can go ahead with uh, a tax directive as long as a, a minimum of nine are on board. So we'll have to wait and see what happens with that. Uh, meanwhile, the U.S. actually announced recently that it would uh, cancel its uh, treaty with Hungary, citing Hungary's you know opposition to the Globe Directive, uh, the Pillage Directive in the EU, and that has riled up some uh, Republican lawmakers actually in the U.S. A bunch of Republican lawmakers uh, actually sent a letter to Treasury saying that the U.S. should reverse its stance on canceling the treaty with Hungary. You never mind the fact that uh, you know the, the um, Hungary-U.S. treaty that uh, is going to be canceled is going to be canceled anyway because there is a pending uh, new Hungary-U.S. treaty that has not been approved yet in the Senate. So a lot of threads to unspool here because uh, Pillar 2 is uh, really the one pillar that has been ramping up in terms of uh, action.
0: Well, speaking of action, what are we expecting next on Pillar 2?
1: I'm waiting for the OECD to release their implementation framework for the globe rules, uh, as well as the STTR. And I am just waiting to see, you know, which other countries are going to be the first to put the plunge. really. We'll see what happens.
0: All right. Well, then turning to Pillar 1, what's been happening since we last talked about that?
1: So Pillar 1 isn't getting as much Attention these days as pillar two, just because pillar one seems to be more of a far-fetched prospect in terms of implementation, which I guess is sort of fair because you know a lot of the rules, even though countries have agreed to implement it, a lot of the rules have not been finalized yet. So the OECD has been hard at work, you know, producing public consultation documents for draft amount A rules. So in July they produced a public consultation draft on amount A rules and held a public consultation meeting in September in Paris. And then they produced another public consultation document on draft administration rules and tax certainty aspects of Amount A and issues related to Amount A. So that consultation just closed, and uh, comment letters have been published. So I don't know when that consultation meeting will happen, but I would expect that um, to take place at some point. Meanwhile, you know G20 finance ministers and leaders uh, continue uh, to push ahead with Pillar 1 and Pillar 2. Recently, the G20 leaders, they had a meeting in Bali and in their declaration, they you know, reaffirmed their commitment to both pillars and actually called on countries to, you know, to sign on to the multilateral convention that's needed to implement the Pillar 1 um, amount A rules when those rules are ready. So the OECD is currently working on uh, producing that uh, multilateral convention, and they're hoping to get it ready for countries to sign by mid-2023. Uh, meanwhile, we're also waiting for other what they call building blocks of amount A, um, including a document on unilateral measures. So this document will uh, is expected to discuss like what kind of unilateral measures countries will be expected to withdraw once those amount A rules are in place.
0: Now, you alluded to this before, but but Pillar 1 does seem to be a much heavier lift than Pillar 2. What can we expect if it fails? Well,
1: we can expect lots of digital services taxes probably. You know, uh, digital services taxes are sort of like the boogeyman in the room. All countries don't want digital services taxes, especially the U.S. The U.S. is – Republicans and Democrats can agree on one thing, and that's that digital services taxes are bad. And, you know, if Pillar 1 fails, if, if Amount A fails, then I wanna, I probably bet that those digital services taxes will be back um, in force, in full force, because a lot of countries are fed up with seeing you know, what they see as, you know, digital giants or, you know, companies with digital services really just escaping tax. So I, they're, they're going to probably act on uh, unilateral measures. You know, and that brings up the question of, up about, like, whether we'll see more trade disputes over digital services taxes, and already we're kind of seeing some action toward that direction because the USTR, the the US trade representative, has been consulting on, you know, um, the Kenya trade deal with, you know, and had a public consultation. Um, And some, you know, trade groups have been, you know, bringing up this idea again that, you know, as a condition of the new Kenya-US treaty, trade treaty or trade agreement, they should drop their digital services tax. So now we're kind of seeing, you know, trade and digital taxation kind of creep back together and convene. Um, So I would expect more trade tensions to restart um, if amount A fails. Also, the UK Public Accounts Committee is supposed to hold a hearing on the UK DST on December 8th. Just questioning HMRC and Treasury about, like, what the plan is for withdrawing these taxes um, if Amount A, Pillar 1, Pillar 1 Amount A comes into effect. So, you know, those are taxes for everybody.
0: Support for this podcast is provided by the University of California, Irvine School of Law Graduate Tax Program. Ranked number one on the West Coast and number five nationwide, This top-ranked, innovative program prepares students to practice tax law at the highest level, in the U.S. and abroad. Featuring a low student-to-faculty ratio, cutting-edge technology instruction, and dedicated career support, UCI's graduate tax program helps prepare students for a future in tax law. Program graduates are placed in top tax-related industries, practicing law in many major U.S. cities. Applications are open now. For more information, and to apply to this highly selective program, Visit law.uci.edu/gradtax. That's law.uci.edu/gradtax. Well, uh, then stepping back for the bigger picture, is there any sense of when this entire project is going to be finished?
1: This is a very good question. I would guess that this will never end. <laughs> Which is good for me because I can write about it all day long. But, you know, I, I really, you know, seriously, I think that, um, that there is really no, I think there's, I don't know if there is an end in the project. I mean, I guess the near future, the dates I can see maybe for the major parts of the project to be finished is like 2024, 2025 maybe. Um, you know, but I, I think that it's going to be an ongoing process. Um, I don't know if there's going to be a real end date in sight. Yeah, you know, Unless the G20 decides they want to scrap everything, I don't think it's going to happen. But yeah, I, I think it'll be with us for a long time to come.
0: Well, that's great because I love having you on the podcast. <laughs> and so we're going to get to keep doing that for the foreseeable future. <laughs> Stephanie, thank you for being here.
1: Oh, thanks for having me
0: now coming attractions. Each week we highlight new and interesting commentary in our magazines. Joining me now is Acquisitions and Engagement Editor-in-Chief Paige Jones. Paige, what do you have for us? Thanks,
2: Dave. In Notes Federal, Bora Boskert and Michael Bauer examine the taxation of bridge convertibles. Marty Sullivan examines the growing budget deficit and how inflation could serve as a deficit reduction mechanism, albeit a dangerous and temporary one. In Tax Notes State, Billy Hamilton examines the results of notable tax measures on the state ballots in November. Justin Atwood and Brooks Poole examine the effects of different state income tax laws on NFL players' contract negotiations. In Tax Notes International, Mindy Herzfeld explains that FTX's bankruptcy filing raises questions about the need for tax regulation in the crypto industry. Wolfram Richter and Stefan Weber proposed a better approach to the amount A double taxation problem. In featured analysis, Roxanne Bland examines market-based sourcing and where and how to determine the right market. On the opinions page, Joe Thorndike explains why the U.S. debt limit should be abolished. And now, for a closer look at what's new and noteworthy in our magazines, here is Tax Note State Editor-in-Chief Jan rausch Sender.
3: Thank you, Paige. I'm here with Namita Yadav, a partner at Withers in San Francisco. Welcome to the podcast, Namita. Thank you very much, John. Let's chat about your Tax Note State column, "Tax Matters of Life and Death," and your most recent article, "To PTE or Not to PTE: Estate Planning and Salt PTE Elections," which you co-authored with Mark Mullen of Shartz's Freeze. What factors should come into play when deciding whether to PTE?
4: Well, you know, it is always a philosophical question, but beyond, beyond the philosophy of it, I think there there are a couple of different things, right? Like first and foremost, there, there have been numerous other articles that have been written on the broader income tax implications of a PTE election, right? What we were trying to focus on was more about the estate tax, which has not really been thought about as comprehensively. I think like people have had, you know, like sort of passing thoughts of, but wait, what if the PTE is owned by, you know, like different types of trust that was set up, you know, using estate planning techniques to do wealth transfer, right? And that is what we were really trying to think about more in depth to say, well, actually, if you just, do a PTE election and your, and a lot of, you know, your family limited partnerships type entities uh, or family LLCs, whichever ones, tend to have, you know, quite basic type of partnership provisions. They're not providing for things like special allocations or, you know, any type of mechanisms by which you can actually preserve the reason why you put the PTE under your grant or trust, which was to actually keep... The grantor paying the income tax. So, this doing this is actually undercutting that. So, I think the factors are numerous, right? Like, you have to take the overall income tax savings, which is somewhat more of a complex decision than you know just oh if the entity pays tax it is just per se a win right like sometimes when I've spoken to you know uh, various accountants they have told me that when they actually run the numbers they find that this tax savings might not be as you know as big as they might have originally thought or the client might have thought so I think as always you know like really having a, a comprehensive grasp of this is what the true you know, tax benefit is, and then offsetting that by, okay, well, what is the cost on, say, the estate tax side, and then coming up with a solution, which can actually kind of thread the needle. Absolutely. I appreciate you
3: highlighting the several factors and the unique perspective this article brings to the conversation. And you are right. This certainly is not the most common discussion when we talk about PTEs. That's why I think it's so valuable. Now, I was thrilled to launch your column, Tax Matters of Life and Death, in July. How did you choose your column name?
4: Well, isn't tax always about life and death? <laughs> <laughs> yes. For many clients. Did... No, Um. I think so. You know, I work with, you know, families, individuals to do, you know, both estate tax and income tax planning. So to me, it is a matter of death, right? Like estate tax wouldn't really, let's face it, it wouldn't really matter if, people to die. So it is a matter of death, but also of life. You don't want to just, you know, and, and I think that some of the things that I've talked about in various articles, like the PTE article, as well as the Exodus from California, all try to take into account like this Wade approach, right? Like at the end of the day, it is about Optimizing. So it is a tax matter of life and death, right? You're trying to optimize between various types of taxes. You know, you don't want to yank on one lever too hard without actually thinking through these other aspects that will also affect the individual's taxes.
3: Absolutely. And this is why I am so thrilled to have you join me and this new column. Now, would you care to share hints on what's to come in your next article?
4: So as you know, like I, I always have like five different things that I always want to talk about, but I think one of the things that I've been thinking more, you know, interestingly about, you know, like, as you know, I work and, you know, my practice is based in in California for the most part, but California is a very interesting area, like a, in the Bay Area, especially because you do have people who are, you know, a good chunk of The folks here uh, may have cross-border issues, right? Like they may not be U.S. citizens or they might have family that is not U.S. citizens. So even when you're looking at a state matter, you are actually overlapping different and very interesting tax concepts because it can have a multitude of effects, right? And fascinatingly, California doesn't necessarily actually follow the U.S. tax treaties, So even if you have certain tax benefits that might apply on a treaty with the country, the state can still go ahead and do its own taxation. And to me, that is just like, you know, it's almost like its own microcosm. So you're you're actually dealing with federal tax and cross-border. And it is a good chunk of my practice. But I think one of the sort of like recent developments that might bring light to this is you know, when you have celebrities moving to California, like, for example, certain ex-members of the of the um, UK royal family, like, what are the implications there? You know, how can one think through all of these myriad of, you know, crossing over taxes? Thank you so much for joining me today,
3: Namita. It's always a pleasure to catch up. Before I let you go, where can listeners find you
4: online? Oh, thanks. I mean, it is always a pleasure to chat with you about tax and all other things of life and death. But uh, online, you know, other than, of course, the tax notes publications, which the archives are always available my firm, Withers, also puts up our articles, and we also put them out on LinkedIn. I usually you know, like to put a little link of the article in my own LinkedIn profile, so that is also available that way, and in the firm's LinkedIn, of course.
3: Excellent. You can find Namita's article online at taxnotes.com. And be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel, Tax Notes, for more in-depth discussions on what's new and noteworthy. Again, that's Tax Notes with an S. Back to you, Dave.
0: That's it for this week. You can follow me online at tax Stew, that's S-T-E-W. And be sure to follow at Tax Notes for all things tax. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for a future episode, You can email us at podcast at taxanalyst.org. And as always, if you like what we're doing here, please leave a rating or review wherever you download this podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Notes Talk is a production of Tax Notes. You can learn more about us by visiting www.taxnotes.com slash podcast. When major media wants the straight story, they turn to tax notes. Thank you for listening and join us again for another edition of Tax Notes Talk.